welcome to the Being Known podcast with my friend, Dr. Desire. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my, I did not see that coming. Oh, and my friend, Pepper Sweeney, the most beautiful man in the world. <laughs> <laughs> we are here to discover and explore what it means Woo. to be truly known. <laughs> and all of the oh pitfalls. My gosh. I, I, hope, I hope our listeners, I hope y'all are still, I, they haven't turned this off yet. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh my gosh. <laughs> this is again the third season of the Being Known podcast and it is my delight to be going through the soul mm. of desire, discovering the neuroscience of longing, beauty and community with its author, Dr. Mm. Kurt Thompson. Mm. And we are on episode 7, which means we are in chapter 7, uh, which is on dwell. And these mm. few chapters here are centered around Psalm 27:4. And in particular, today's chapter is centered around that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Mm -hmm. Kurt, I love this chapter. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the things that was really compelling to me about this chapter is when you were talking about the confessional communities, mm -hmm. uh, you, you talk about the fact that there are, there are a couple of questions that are often asked in these communities. And on mm -hmm. the surface, they may seem to have one meeting, but in these communities, they come to have a much deeper, um, sometimes anxiety provoking, but mm -hmm. very much a sort of um, way to get to the beauty of it all. And mm -hmm. one of those questions is, where am I? And the other question is, with whom am I living? Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about that a little bit. So when you ask, where am I in, in this context, what are you really asking? Well, you know, I, th I think, um, the, the, you know, th that, that question is, uh, and it, we, we unpack it even a little more uh, robust way in two chapters down the line. Um, but here we're really trying to be curious about this notion of like, when I ask where I am, I'm not just answering, well, I'm here in my office or you're there in your studio or where I, I dwell in Arlington, Virginia. This sense of where am I, if someone were to ask me that question, I typically will, my reflection will be, well, where am I? Kurt, where am I? One thing that's really important is it's not just a geographic location. Right. It is a more comprehensive, it is a deeper question of what is the state of my soul? That's one element. What, what is the state of my soul? But not just where am I singularly? This question as it would have been put by God to Adam, where are you? Like, where am I? This dwelling, it is a location, but I'm dwelling with others. It's always the question of where am I in relationship to other people, in relationship to other things. Uh, human beings in general, and now we in the West in particular for many, many, many generations, if this question is ever put to us, I typically immediately imagine myself, and I don't imagine myself in relationship to you. Am I, where am I? Well, I'm actually closer to you now than I was yesterday. That's where hmm. I am. I'm farther away from you. 
I, uh, where am I? Well, I'm, I, something happened yesterday for which I'm ashamed. And so therefore in relationship to you, there is a part of me that I'm holding back and afraid to tell you, but I want to be closer to you. So I know that I need to reveal this to you, or I really want to be closer to you. And so I'm going to be curious about you and want to come closer to you. And so this question is always a query that is inviting me to be curious, not just about myself in isolation, myself alone, but it's always asking me to expand my imagination, not unlike we were talking about in our last episode. I want to expand my imagination. Where am I in relationship to other people? This is, you know... Oh my gosh, this is, this is, oh, so I don't, I don't know if I've ever told you this story. So Phyllis and I and our two kids, uh, our, our son was uh, about, oh, I don't know, he was about three months old. And Phyllis and I and our, and our daughter would have been about three, three, a little older than three years old. And Phyllis and I and our two kids, we went for a hike on the Blue Ridge Parkway. We wanted to drive out to the Blue Ridge here in Virginia. And uh, we went for a, like a half day hike. And, you know, I had Nathan in the backpack and Phyllis and Rachel, Rachel was walking along with us. We did not, not a long, but it was really, really beautiful, gorgeous day. We came back and we stopped at a restaurant uh, in Front Royal, Virginia to eat before we then drove home. It's been a fabulous day. And uh, so I dropped Phyllis and Rachel off at the uh, restaurant door and Phyllis is going to go in and get a table and I'm going to go park the van. And so I go park the van and I've got, you know, so I take Nathan, I go park the van and then I come back to the restaurant. I walk into the restaurant and Phyllis looks at me and says, where's the baby? (laughs) 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 And the first, you know, nano to microsecond, I'm like, what kind of a question is that? Like, and then I'm like, Uh, oh my gosh, I've left Nathan in the car out in the parking lot. Uh, and so, like, there's this there's this sense in which, you know, she could have said, well, where's the baby? The, the baby is, like, out, you know, 200 yards away from me. All I needed to do was get, open the door. No, I could, like, I like Kurt can't multitask. All he, like, I just got to park the car and get back to the restaurant. I can't park the car. And then remember that I have a son who's three <laughs> months old in his car carrier that's in the back. Hey, and so I like immediately went I've back. I've got a lot of grace the, for you in this story, uh, just so you know. <laughs> got the baby. And the sense is like, well, where are where's the baby? Like, we're not just like curious about like the location of Nathan. We're curious about the location of Nathan in relationship to us. Right. And he's not where he needs to be. You know, they sent a boy to do a man's job to drive the car out there and park it and bring the bring the baby back in. And uh and, and, and this, is, this is true for us because whenever our trauma or our insecurities or our shame or our fear, whatever, show up and start to grip us, if we were to have anyone ask us where we are, our common reflection is this is where I am and I perceive that I am alone. Wherever I happen to be, I'm alone with me in that locale. Right. In that particular emotional space, that particular really, I'm not thinking, well, I'm in relationship to someone else. Or at the very most, I might think that, oh, I've like I've disappointed Pepper, I've disappointed Amy, I've disappointed Phyllis. I and like and she doesn't want to have like why does she want to have anything to do with me? Especially since she can't trust me to bring her child back out of the car. You know, like can you imagine her thing like, I can't leave you alone for a weekend with our children. No like, way. You, you you can't get him from the parking lot to the restaurant. <laughs> 
Yeah. So it is this this question, this deep question of where are we in relationship to other people? And just like when God asks Adam initially, where are you? He's not just asking him, you know, where are you in the woods hiding from your wife and from me and from everybody else? But where are you in relationship to me? You know, I and can we, remember we, us. I'm sorry. I, no, I can remember us um, early on when we were doing the retreats together and we were gathering as a team and the question was asked of me, you know, where are you right now? And the the reality of the situation at the time was I was I was feeling a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress about some things. And my answer was, I don't know where I am. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to say that at the mm-hmm. time because I don't mm-hmm. know. You know, um, mm-hmm. I was in new relationships with a lot of the people in the room at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. But also it's like, and you say it in the book, uh, the first thing you think about is what is the right answer, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. because you don't want to, you don't want to answer wrong in a situation like Mm -hmm. that, especially when you're first starting something like this, right? Mm. Yeah. 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 I mean... It is frequently the case that, you know, when we start these confessional communities, the people who join them uh, are people who have often had no small amount of work that they've been doing in individual psychotherapy. And so they're pretty seasoned folks at doing this work of the inner life. But they've been doing this work of the inner life with a therapist that they've come to know over several months, if not years, who they've come to trust and they know and they can just say anything to. And now, and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm eager to do this work with this community. And there they are on the first day. And they're like deer in the headlights. Everybody, frequently. Yeah. Because there is this sense that suddenly I'm now invited to do the work that I've been doing with this, you know, with Kurt or with Courtney or with Kelsey, you know, the people that are doing it with Dave, these people that are doing it in our practice, these dark, our, our staff. I've been doing this work with all this confidence. And now like... George is in the room. Sheila's in the room. Like, I have no no idea who these people are. Right. Now I'm going to have to trust that Courtney or Kurt have brought these people in, and I trust Kurt, so maybe I'll trust Kurt to bring a person in who's, you know, not, you know, a serial killer. But I, I, like, my body doesn't know that. I don't know that in this really. And that's got to take some time. Just like we were talking last week, it's two millimeters a day. But I mean, right. it's got to say, take some time to build that trust, to to have the confidence in yourself. Right. That, and part of the process of the confessional community is that confidence is building in you because you're being affected by the other people in the room. Right. Um, it's fascinating. And and there's a great illustration, which we'll talk about next week, in, in Brandon in this situation that, that he's in, in in the confessional community that I can't wait for you guys to hear because mm. it's an amazing story. But we'll talk about that next week. But it is a I, I just want to highlight that yeah. because it's it's we're going to come back to this uh, in detail a little bit next week. Um, yeah. So these these well, communities are incredible and in how they the group affects the individual, the individual affects the group. And, right. and yet it takes time. They have to mm. dwell together, to dwell together. So let's just talk about dwelling. So, right. so when it's in the scripture and when you say it, you name the chapter dwell, like how are you defining dwelling? Well, one thing that we would say is that dwelling, it is to remain. It is to remain in a place. You know, you lived in L.A. for what, 20 years? I did. 
Right. And 20 years is not a short period of time. Right. It, it, is, it, is, a, it, it is an amount of time to be in a particular place, to become familiar with it, for the place to become familiar with you and relationships and so forth. I, I think about the stories that you tell about your time with your, uh, your, your professional experience with Burt Reynolds. Right. And, and I, I'd love for you to t- talk a little bit about it because like, I think like you didn't, you didn't live in Florida for 20 years. Oh, no. But, but the depth and yep. the intensity of the relational interactions that you had in that period of time reminds me of dwelling. Hmm. I, well, I'd love I, for you to like talk about that a little bit. So I was dwelling with like 12 other people my age uh, or around, um, all college graduates who had gone down and auditioned with hundreds of people to be an apprentice in this theater for a year. And I was one of the people that was selected, which, you know, I, I think I told the story on an earlier podcast where I, I, had, <laughs> I really had no, no right to be one of the people that was selected based on my dancing and singing abilities. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but I've seen you sing and dance now, and I've said, like, they got that all wrong. Because, like, dude, no, like, yeah, I, I, you know I've, better. I've seen, I've seen beauty in action when you're on the dance floor. But I have, have a, a picture. Microphone. I have a picture of you and I and Noah singing. And, oh, yeah. And you and Noah can actually sing. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm so glad it's not a video because I would be, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be known in that way. So... <laughs> So the year it was a it was one year apprenticeship in the theater, and when I say one year, it was it was 365 days. We had two days off the entire year. Mm. Um, we got mm. smart to the fact that when they gave us a day off, not to answer your phone in the morning because if you answer your phone, you had to come <laughs> in and clean the theater or whatever. And oh. you would you would go in at like seven in the morning, and you would work all day. You were responsible for you know the lights, the sound, all the things for these ma- big productions. We would also be doing our own productions on the dark nights. And you would be, um, you would audition to understudy the, the, the big shows. And then you would have at the end of the night, because they would be bringing in all of these Broadway caliber actors and dancers and singers, and um, they would be teaching you classes after the shows until sometimes two, three in the morning. Wow. It was intense. Dude, that's dwelling, it, man. Holy it cow. Was, Life-changing. It was mm. amazing. It was mm. the most fun. It mm. was, I was learning when I didn't realize I was learning. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. I, I remember, we've talked about Charles Nelson Riley on this podcast, oh, who was a yeah. dear friend, and that's where I met him, was in, was in Florida. And um, Charles, Charles <laughs> tells the story when he, when he first <laughs> fell in love with me. Was, he was, I, I had to go. There was a grocery store across the street, and I had to go buy eyelashes for all the chorus girls. So, so I was over in. Wait, 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 wait. I just want to, say, to all of you who are joining us, I just can you just just pause, rewind it, run that again. That's right, Pepper going to the grocery store. He's going to Safeway to buy eyelashes for all the chorus girls. It was actually Albertsons, but close enough. Okay. So, so, so I come out, and Charles was on crutches at the time. And he was about to have his hip replaced. Mm. And uh, Bert had cast me in a play called End is a Man that he wanted me to, that he wanted me to be in. But uh, Nell, my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was living, I was in Florida, she was back here in Kentucky, and um, her father had passed away. 
And so I was going to go back to the funeral. And you really had to get a lot of permissions to leave for the year because, you know, everybody was responsible for so many things. And so I got permission to leave. And anyway, I'm coming out of the, out of the grocery store, and there's Charles on his crutches. And he says, um, uh, he says, so uh, I, I've heard you can't be in the play. And I said, <laughs> I said no, I, I said, Charles, I have to go back to um, Kentucky because my girlfriend's uh, father passed away, and I, I want to go back for the funeral. And he says, well, what, how did he die? And without thinking, because it is what happened, I said, well, he had his hip rep- <laughs> Charles said, and that's when I fell in love with that. <laughs> so, so we would have these, we would have these great classes at night. Charles, you would be laughing all the way through. I mean, if you, I tell you, if you came to, to acting class unprepared in a Charles Nelson Riley class, you would, he would, He would rip you to shreds, but in a way that you're laughing so hard that tears run. But you would never let it happen again. You would never let it happen again because you couldn't. You couldn't take it more than once. Um, But it it was this community of people, and we we just worked. We just worked, and we played, and we lived. I lived with four other students. Um, We shared all of our meals meals together for a year uh, at the theater. Um, We would you know, party at night, you know, you'd finish at two, two, three in the morning and you're young and out of college, you're still wanting to gather and hang out more (laughs) knowing that you got to get up in an hour and a half and come back. So, uh, it was real dwelling Mm -hmm. and we really got to know one another, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and, and really deep ways in that year. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think that's what we, that's what we would say that, you know, dwelling is, uh, life is not a, uh, fast food drive-through experience. Right. Right. That's not what that's not what dwelling is. Dwelling is being in a space in which uh, we're there long enough f- with those other people. That you know, the psalm itself goes on later in the psalm in a different verse to talk about that this this writer is dwelling in the land of the living. The writer wants to dwell in the land with other people who are doing the hard work of life. Not, not unlike what you're describing. Right. You're in this community of people who are doing this hard work together. And as we like to say, the brain can do a lot of hard work for a long time, as long as it doesn't have to do it by itself. Yeah. And there's an aspect, there was an aspect to that particular year and that we couldn't leave. And Mm -hmm. so if you had issues with one another, one way or another, they had to be worked out. And there was some there was some drama. I'll just say all the drama wasn't happening on the stage. No pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can imagine when this is, and you know, what we have often talked about these different phases, we, I think we talked a little bit about this in a previous episode, these different phases of the development of a confessional community. At some point, you know, we move from, oh, I'm just here to learn something so that I can take it out into my real life all the way to the point where we discover like, oh, this is my real life right here in this community where I'm not just talking about my family. Now I'm talking about you across the room because you just said something that really pissed me off or hurt my feelings or whatever. I'm like, I'm, I, or I'm confused or the whole nine yards. But it is in a community in which we're welcoming those moments because we want the ruptures to be repaired. We want to practice what that means. And that's, we, we want to practice envisioning beauty emerging especially in those places that Hmm. are most broken and difficult and not just those moments that happened between me and my dad when I was 15 or when I was 10 
but the difficult moment that just happened between you and me right here and now in this space where I'm dwelling. This notion then that um, if I'm going to dwell with people who are going to live in the real world, uh, we're all going to be aware that we're going to suffer and suffer together. Uh, but typically, as we like to say, that suffering in and of itself, which we'll also talk about later in more detail, suffering in and of itself is something that primarily is, you know, its quality is intensified primarily because I suffer alone. As opposed to I'm having an experience of suffering, but if you come to find me or I come to find you, that mitigates that very experience. It might not change my circumstances where in which the suffering takes place if it's right. happened outside this community. But if I've suffered at your hand, what we come to discover is that if I'm going to remain, if I'm going to dwell, like we can't leave, like you were, like you couldn't leave in your community, right. Right. you're going to have to work it out. And, you know, you know, we live in a, in a culture now where because of the convenience of social media, we continue to just ex expand our distance between one another while we lob grenades across the chasm, which in many respects is the complete antithesis of what you all had to do in your year of, inter of, of that uh, apprenticeship in Florida. Right. And instead, I just stake my claim and make my comments and post them on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is about the other. Yeah. Without having to dwell with them. You know, you also talk about, you know, in talking about sort of social media, you, you talk a little bit and you don't, you don't dwell on it too much. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you do talk about sort of the age of the Internet and how mm -hmm. it's sort of causing us to not pay attention. Can you just talk about that just for a minute? Yeah, uh, there's a lovely book. It's a, it's a, um, uh, it's a bit of a jarring book uh, by Nicholas Carr that came out a number of years ago uh, called The Shallows, How the Internet is Changing Our Brains. And in this book, Carr highlights the fact that there have been many, many technological advances over the course of human history. And he catalogs them and explores them and why, how, you know, the kinds of social changes that they enacted. Right? He, he spends a lot of time, for instance, on the notion of reading and then the printing press and how those things made revolutionary changes, technological changes that revolutionized how we dwell. Those right. are his words, but it revolutionized how we're able to be with one another. Mm -hmm. But when he gets to the internet, he points out that this has taken things to a completely different level. This is not the same as moving from an oral tradition to a written tradition in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, we would go farther and say that the internet, for all of its benefits, the internet has not made us better people. Right. The internet perhaps has made us more efficient people in some respects, but now we have folks who, like literally, when it comes to driving their car from one place to the other, like if you were to ask them, gosh, I gotta get from here to there, can you tell me how to go? They can't tell you. No. They can, like, I'm, you know, they can barely get from their living room to their bathroom without getting their, you know, their phone out to, you know, find that, how, how, do, how do I get there? This, this sense that I am literally being trained for two things. I'm being trained to be distracted. I'm looking to be distracted. I'm anticipating, I, I have a longing to be distracted, not primarily because distraction is what I long for, but because when I'm not distracted after a certain period of time, I start to become anxious. Yeah. Because the whole notion of remaining with something, 
dwelling with something for a long period of time is difficult. And so then there's this notion that I'm being primed to distract. And that means that I am not primed to be able to flexibly adapt and be present with others when things become distressing. Right. I can't be present with myself when I'm distressed because I need to be distracted. And therefore, how in the world am I going to be present with you when there's distress between us? Oh, I'll just like walk away and text you about all the things that I'm upset about, but then I won't have to talk to you about this. Right. You know, the, I, I, Kurt, I think you were the one that told me this, um, but how if you and I are sitting together really in person right now, and if my phone is sitting on the table in front of me, that impacts the connection that you and I can have because that's there in my periphery, and I'm, I want to be distracted by that, I guess, you right. know, or I'm well, used to being distracted by that. Right, and, and there's, there's, there's now growing evidence that um, in, in, in kind of a, some emerging attachment research that indicates that if a mom has her phone in the room, yep. she doesn't even have to be answering her phone, looking at her phone. If the mom has her phone in the room, the baby senses it. And the baby senses the mother's that the, 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 the mother is not completely as with me as she could be. The, like wow. the baby's like the baby's six months old. The baby doesn't even know what yeah. a phone is. Yeah. But the baby is able to sense that there is a part of mom that's being siphoned off because mom is now there's a part of mom's awareness that is committed to the phone, even when the phone's not ringing. Yeah. This is something you know. I mean, I. I... I personally am, am a little guilty of, and, and that is, you know, I, so I have on my phone, on my watch, I have an Apple watch, you know, so uh, I get notifications from work on my watch, and I have to literally at night, I have to just take it off, put my phone some, or, or you know, I'll be in the middle of a conversation with my wife, and my, phone, my wrist will buzz, and I'll glance down at it, and this connection is done. I mean, mm. it's, mm. you know, mm. and I, I get it. Yeah, and I understand her frustration, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, so right. it's, it's sometimes you just got to shut it all off. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, for those of you who aren't familiar with my friend, my friend Andy Crouch wrote a book a number of years ago called The TechWise Family, and uh, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Hmm. And in that book, Andy has some very practical boots on the ground recommendations for what does it mean for us to really understand our devices as that, as devices, not as extensions of who we are, such that we are actually going to regulate the device and not the other way around, which is the way it is for most of us, our devices is regulating us. And this is this is really really challenging. You know, we we say uh, that there there are some ways for us to you know if I'm going to dwell, yeah, with you, uh, you know, is well, let's, let me start three sentences at once and finish none of them before I. You know. <laughs> That's okay. We're used to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is striking to me that the fourth commandment of the Decalogue is to remember the Sabbath. You know, you, we, we think that with all of our kind of modern push to have a shorter and shorter work week, you'd think that it would make sense. Like, oh my gosh, like, of course I want a Sabbath. Of course I want a day of rest. Of course I like it. No. 
we don't want a day of rest. We just don't want to work at something that we don't want to work at so that we can go work at other things. It is striking to me that to rest was a command that had to be issued. To simply be still, to simply allow yourself to do nothing but dwell and to remember that all is well because God is on the throne is something that the Hebrews had to be told, had to be made to do (laughs) because if they don't do it, they don't stop to recognize that 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 moment of dwelling, resting in God's presence and his care for them was not just for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the day in which they are reminded of this so that they can then take that and live with that throughout the rest of their week. The internet and our use of social media and all the things have us practicing the very opposite. We practice not resting. We practice, we, we practice being anxious. And, uh, and so it's, it's a difficult thing for me to then, what does it mean for me to dwell, let alone dwell in the house of the Lord, which I think is the other thing that we're really trying to pay attention to here, that the writer in this verse says, like, dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And this notion that when the writer wrote this, the house of the Lord would have been represented by the tabernacle, this tent hmm. of the Lord that was in Shiloh right. at the time that David would have been writing this. But that tent moved then to become the temple that Solomon built. So we move, the house of the Lord moves from the tent to the temple. And we move 400 years past the exile. And Jesus says in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. And now we recognize, oh my goodness, we've, the temple, I mean, the, the house of the Lord has moved from temp, from tabernacle to temple to Jesus himself. And then we get to Pentecost in the wake of the resurrection and the ascension and the Holy Spirit comes and we discover, oh my gosh, the Holy Spirit, God has chosen to dwell within us and that you and I and Amy and Nell and Phyllis and your kids and my kids, like we are the house of the Lord. Hmm. We are the house of the Lord. And that to dwell with us in that regard, then moves forward into 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, where Paul talks about the body of Christ. This notion that the house of the Lord actually is now serving a purpose of loving each other with different gifts and different ways of being in the world, such that when we get to Revelation 3, where the writer says to the church of Philadelphia, for you who persevere and conquer, I will make you a pillar in the house of my God. That the arc of the biblical narrative runs from a tent to each of us being a pillar. We are the house of the Lord. And so we're saying that to dwell means to be with one another. Be with one another. It's not just I live in Arlington. It's that I dwell with you and that has some geographical implications. Who am I going to be with on a regular daily basis? But it also has other implications when I'm with you even here. Mm-hmm. Like, I, 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 like I think that that's what we're doing right here and now when we're having this conversation. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I mean, even though we haven't had the chance to meet people that are listening to this, I, I have this felt sense that we are dwelling together. I do too. Yeah. 
And this notion of dwelling is to dwell all the days of our lives in this house of the Lord, to be in community with each other on a continually cadenced basis. And uh, in our last episode, I mentioned, I think, the Mark Rothko painting and this, this notion that, you know, I, I like, what am I, how do you, how do you, you know, what does it mean, right? Like, I don't know what this is. Well, I don't get it, right? But to dwell meant I was going to live with this. I'm going to sit for 30 minutes. I'm not going, like, I'm not leaving. And in the dwelling, we discover that things begin to emerge that otherwise couldn't emerge if we aren't willing to stay in one place for a long enough period of time and allow others to do what we'll talk about in our next episode, allow others to gaze upon us and we gaze upon them. But I can't gaze if I'm not stationary long enough. And again, to dwell does not mean I'm immobile. It doesn't mean I'm just static. It means that it's kind of like planting a garden. I, you know, you have a half acre piece of land and you're going to it's in that space that I'm going to dwell and I'm going to plant and I'm going to weed and I'm going to water, I'm going to tend and a harvest will come. But like, I can't, I, I, I can't be constantly like going off to my phone. I can't just go and do that. Like I have to be in this space to pay attention long enough. And this is what we talk about in John's gospel where God in Jesus has come to dwell with us, creating in us and through us these outposts of beauty and goodness that we long to become and to create along with him. That's great. Yeah, dwelling, it's, it is not sitting still. I mean, it, it's, there's work required for sure. Um, we don't have a lot of time left in this episode, but I, I, I would love for you, you talk a little bit about deep reading <laughs> and dwelling in this chapter, and I would love for you to just, um, just talk, talk about how reading, um, deep reading can really impact us. Well, you know, 50 years ago, we would never have had to have had this conversation. Right. Um, 50 years ago, probably. But now we have to have it because deep reading, and by deep reading, we mean our reading particular kinds of literature. And by this, I don't just mean some random, you know, textbook on linear algebra. I mean the deep reading of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, you know, all the Russians, right? Uh, Flannery O'Connor. And, like, right. and you read Flannery O'Connor's sh- short stories, right? It's not, they're not long texts, but they take you into deep places. You read Lord of the Rings, for instance. There are a lot of other great pieces of literature that when we're when we enter into it, we and we talk about you know, in particular the character of Tom Bombadil in mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, uh, and this notion of like if you're going to read about Tom Bombadil, you, you know you're listening to you're reading Tolkien, right? All these things, and you're like like there's a part of like could you please just get on with the story? Like why are you giving me all these details? But there's a sense in which. Bombadil's playfulness, his joy, his sober, like you can't really, you don't, you're, you're not really able to capture that unless you're willing to stay with the character long enough. And we find that deep reading has now become, you know, we, we've got good evidence that would indicate that our capacity for neuroplastic flexibility and change, our capacity to strengthen our attuned attentional mechanism our capacity to do that is exercised and strengthened with deep reading, with our willingness to pick up a piece of literature that is going to require a bit of a slog. Our son started back a number of months ago, War and Peace, for the first time, and he's just recently finished it. 
And he talks about how it's taken a long time, but it has been transformational for him. This sense of the things that he learns about himself and about others, because not just because you like download information from the book, but because in staying with the book, you give yourself the opportunity to slow down long enough to allow your mind to awaken to things that it otherwise wouldn't awaken to because you want life to be a fast food drive through service. And so this notion of deep reading means that we are putting ourselves, we are submitting ourselves to a process, kind of like going to an emotional, mental gymnasium that is strengthening our capacity to become familiar with ourselves and familiar with human beings in ways that we otherwise won't become if we are not willing to insert ourselves into that space and do the long hard, but ultimately satisfying and beautiful work of that kind of literature exploration. Yeah, I've I've, uh, experienced this a few different times, uh, Tolstoy and... I think Dickens is a little easier to read, but mm-hmm. it's, 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 you know, certainly, it's you know, great example. Um, Faulkner got me uh, when I read yep. Sound and the Fury. I didn't know anything about the story and the words were so impactful to me, but I didn't even in the beginning because he does it in from different points of view. Mm-hmm. And I think that opening chapters are from uh, like a disabled person. You know, you, you mm-hmm. don't know that going into it. So, but, but the words are so beautiful and you just live, you just stay with it. I just had to stay with it and stay with it. And sometimes have to reread pages to figure out mm-hmm. what, what mm-hmm. is happening here until mm-hmm. you had to wait for it to come to me. Mm-hmm. And I had to mm-hmm. keep staying mm-hmm. in it and keep staying mm-hmm. in it. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so worth it. I, I, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, and, and it can be hard to find, you know, today, like you're saying, it can be hard to find the time to do it. You have to commit to it for sure. You do. Well, yeah. you know, it'd be kind of like if you and I were going to uh, sit down and you see a, you see a 1,000 pound block of marble. Yeah. A 1,000 pound block of marble with Michelangelo and he's got a chisel and a hammer. And you're like, wow, I've heard about this dude. I've heard he's really good. I wonder what he's going to do. And, you know, he's like 10 minutes into it. And you're like, hey, so what's this going to be? And he's like, you'll see. And now he's, you know, an hour into it. And you're like, "Uh, can I go get a coffee? This is what I mean, right? It took him time. And I just want it now. Yeah. And beauty requires time and durability and presence with others not just because of the things that you and I are making together, but because of what you and I are becoming in the process. That's awesome, Kurt. Time, durability, presence. It's dwelling. Yeah, yeah, right on. Yeah. I am so fortunate that I get to dwell with you on this podcast, Kurt. Mm. Um, right back it's at really, you. Right back it's at really, it's really great. So, if you're watching on YouTube, unfortunately, we won't have a, the bonus material this week. Amy is a little under the weather, so um, she's being a trooper and still producing behind the scenes. But for some reason, she doesn't want to show her face on camera. I don't. I can't yeah. figure out what the issue is. Yeah, I, I don't mean, know what her problem is. Right. Yeah. I mean, look it's at a, Kurt. He doesn't mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no. I, yeah. I have. I. Yeah, I, I have, I have no, I have no, I have no shame. 
I have, I have, uh, yeah, maybe I should. I don't know, but no. I, oh my gosh. Okay, but can, I, can we just say, can we just yes. offer a plug here? Like, I mean, yeah. the fact that, like, Amy really has not been feeling well, and the right. fact that she's kind of like just come to this work today, and we're recording here on a Saturday yep. at 11 o'clock, which is 8 o'clock West Coast time, and yesterday we were recording right. at 7 o'clock West Coast time right. when she was not feeling well. So I'm just, just so grateful for her, and, uh, I just, you know, wish she had more courage to show up when she needs to. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's it's the vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's all uh, yeah, I'm going to say. Exactly. Exactly. And so here, kind of. <laughs> Beautiful. If awesome. I could hold a clear thought, I might engage, but. <laughs> this has been a great conversation. Uh, Love right you guys. On. Love you, Kurt. Love you guys. Right. All See right. you soon. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.